0: Hello and welcome to a new series of interviews um, on my podcast and video channel uh, by Denise Guarda. I'm here to talk about ideas and the biggest solutions and problems humanity is facing and the questions and challenges and how we can think bigger and out of the box and make the world a better place. I conduct a series of interviews and profiles of global thought leaders, um, influencers, experts, and people shaping and creating new narratives solutions for our world society and business industries These podcast and video interviews are part of the platform that i created citiesabc.com that is a new wiki for ar intelligent smart cities tech digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities universities organizations and all of us as citizens and as users of technology Uh, today we have with us someone that i've been working for a long time and as well a friend but as well a a strong mind and thought leader, Azad Sultan. So Azad Sultan is presently the chief executive officer of Deutsche Malayan Ventures that he created. That is an initiative uh, in Malaysia, but has well been working with Europe, especially Germany and a lot of other countries, and they will talk about it. He's as well a veteran in investment banking industry that includes um, uh, almost two decades, or more than two decades in the, in, in the investment banking and uh, as well working between different organizations, uh, initially with the investment bank, Cantor, Fitzgerald, but as well working with Citibank in New York and Tokyo and London, and as well is the founder of KL Tech City, um, and uh, he's been working a lot in the bridge between an intersection between FinTech, Society 5.0, 4AR, and the intersection of media and tech, and as well has been a, a film producer, a screenwriter, and a lot of other things. So, Azad, welcome to our series. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Dennis. Glad to be here. So, Azad, to start, uh, and I think in your case, it's it's quite exciting because you are uh, born in India, but then you grew up in the U.S. and now, and in the past, has been working in Hong Kong, but as well in Malibu and now in Malaysia. So, I want to your around because I think it's wonderful your global footprint, and as well, uh, your career, which is mostly in all continents. I think probably the last continent that you're not so present is probably Latin America. Besides that, you've been all over the world. So just bring us a bit of your history (laughs) and career.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I think uh, I've been lucky in the sense that I felt, you know, both the challenges as well as the opportunity from looking at at industry, looking at uh, experiences from different perspectives. Uh, as you said, I was born in India. I went uh, you know, to boarding school, a British boarding school in India from a very young age. And uh, then I moved to the U.S. for high school, undergraduate, graduate school. So I did my formal schooling, my upper formal schooling in the U.S. And those were two very uh, contrasting cultures at that time. Um, uh, almost immediately after finishing my studies, I moved to uh, Tokyo with Citibank, and then to uh, London, and then to Hong Kong, and I spent a good, you know, a good, a good bit of time in Hong Kong about a decade, working for different banks there, uh, and uh, participating in uh, not just the Hong Kong uh, economic story, but also across Southeast Asia, across South Asia, across East Asia. So it was, you know, it was a pretty broad, um, a broad uh, experience that I had as a banker. Um, And that lasted about 18 years, and since then I've had another dozen years or so as an entrepreneur, uh, having a series of different uh, business experiences across different industries. So yeah, I think not only from a geographical perspective, but also from an industry perspective, I've I've had the luxury and also the challenges of uh, looking at it from many different perspectives.
0: Yeah, that, that I, I want to touch that because it's, it's quite unique. Uh, someone that was born in, in, in India in a very strong culture and as well in a boarding school, which has, as well brings the culture even to a, a new level, but as well then moving to the US and uh, mostly grew up in the US because your your uh, education years were in the US. So can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think it's very important, especially in the crazy geopolitical world we live, how important yeah. this is for all of us, but very few people have these Capacity of adaptation and there's well knowledge that comes out of that because that's a massive uh, wealth of knowledge
1: Yeah, I mean it, it definitely broadens your spectrum in terms of the way that you can engage and uh, you know empathize with different uh, uh, Opportunities or you know challenges for example in India when I grew up uh, uh, In the 70s and 80s. I started boarding school in 1977 when I was six years old Um And you can imagine that was quite, uh, it was quite a common thing in India at that time for, you know, young kids, especially ones that were expatriates uh, to return and go to boarding school in India from a young age. But even then that was, you know, that was quite challenging Uh, at six years old to leave my family, to have that much independence and to, you know, grow up in a a British uh, sort of hill station near Mumbai, Bombay as it was then. Um, And really the, era that we experienced was almost Dickensian. We were living, you know, in the 1900s, not in the 20th century, <laughs> in the boarding school that I went, uh, the, the, the culture, the, the the traditions, the experience we had, for example, you know, and this is something that kids today, you, had, you know, your kids and mine, they couldn't fathom, right? But we didn't have, uh, for example, television, we didn't have radio, we didn't have Uh, you know, sometimes we didn't have electricity. (laughs) So, you know, it was really uh, an experience that um, contrasted very strongly uh, to the the one that I had when I moved to the U.S. at the age of 13 for high school. Um, The U.S. was, you know, at the cusp of the technological kind of development uh, and it was flooded with media, with pop culture, with music, with television. Uh, And this was, you know, it was, I remember when I moved to the U.S. one of the funny things was that uh, people would ask, like kids would ask me, "Which, which bands do you like?" Uh, and I had no idea, <laughs> you know, which bands existed. Uh, I I'd heard of Elvis, and I remember once the police came to Bombay and had a concert. So I, you know, I had a couple of names that I could mention, uh, but beyond that, I had no uh, concept whatsoever of you know what the pop culture in the West was. Then, uh, a place like Cleveland, which was, you know, and still is to this day, where I grew up, a place like Cleveland is very uh, steeped in, you know, classic rock and rock and roll type of culture. Uh, Even now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, for example. So within a very short period of time, uh, you know, I absorbed a huge amount of pop culture that, uh, you know, that allowed me to look at the world from two completely different perspectives, that didn't uh, exist for a lot of my peers. Um, another interesting thing is growing up in a British boarding school, a very, you know, uh, traditional one. Like I said, one that was almost in a different era. Um, we had a command of English language and, you know, and a and a, uh, exposure to literature and, you know, things like that. That was far more, uh, far deeper and far more advanced than uh, what existed in the U.S. Uh, at that time, especially in, you know, kind of uh, not necessarily rural the U.S., but in the Midwest. Um, and it used to blow people's minds that, uh, you know, my command of English was, as a foreigner, as an immigrant, was so uh, far greater than, so, so much in advance of my, you know, my mm-hmm. contemporary peers. And all through high school, through my undergraduate, you know, uh, instructors, teachers, professors, they were always telling me that, look, kid, you know, you should be a writer. You should uh, focus on, um, on, on, on something related to uh, literature or English language. And uh, it's ironic in a way that uh, that's not what I did from a career point of view. It is what I did from a hobby point of view eventually. And, you know, I ended up writing novels and short stories and screenplays. But, you know, it, it wasn't what I did from a career point of view. I finished my undergraduate and I joined Wall Street, you know, almost by chance. Uh, and uh, so you know you have to be prepared for everything i think having that broad uh you know spectrum of experience and different perspectives equipped me for that even as a kid i remember my father was a uh expatriate in uh, bahrain in the gulf the persian gulf and he worked for rj reynolds at that time it was the biggest company in the world he was there you know he ended up being their general manager of the outpost that they had in bahrain and uh so, you know, even from a very young age, we traveled a lot uh, across, uh, you know, Europe and Southeast Asia, the Middle East. And so I guess that's a, COVID has changed that a little bit. I've never stayed at home <laughs> as long as I have over the last two three months. But, and I like it, but, uh, you know, all my life I've kind of been moving around. You've known me for a while and you know that I spent three days in one place and then back up and then spend another three days in another place, you know that's been kind of the, the modern experience that a lot of us have in this global world. You know, we call ourselves global citizens, not really Indian or American or Asian, but, you know, really a citizen of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, something I've certainly done for a long time, but it's nice to have this period of reflection over the last few months to so let it settle in and kind of reflect on, uh, you know, the different, uh, the different habits not even practices but habits that you fall into and how over you know this type of a break you get to change some of the ones that uh, or enjoy ones that you never had and change some of the ones that you had before
0: yeah i want to touch that this is quite impressive because i think what you said that you see yourself and i see as well as citizens of the world but i think we are exceptions because unfortunately most of people live in a the same place, probably most of their lives, probably 99% of the population worldwide. But one of the things I want to touch from your background that is particularly interesting is if you see from the 90s or 80s uh, until now, uh, India went through massive transformation. Okay, and uh, and like you said, coming from India and uh, that is a bit like 19th century, then going to the US that at the time was kind of the most advanced in the world must have been a massive shock. I want to touch that part because. Now we are in a reverse engineer that in 2050, India is going to be probably the second biggest economy in the world and the US is going to be the fourth. So how do you see these kind of um, changes before we go to your career in finance and and as well in film, but starting by this? Because I think this is quite interesting for people that have this kind of prejudice. And as well, people are not conscious about how things change in two decades or three. And I think it's really important to look at the shifts of geograph- geography, power, economical and social development?
1: Well, I, I always like to, um, uh, I like to, uh, if you look at it as an analogy, I like to uh, withdraw from like a 1,000 to 10,000 to 20,000 kind of uh, year view of history. Uh, our modern conception of history is very much a, uh, a 2,000 year, you know, two millennia view of history. This is the modern kind of documented world that we live in, you know, starting with, you know, uh, Egyptian history and Greek history and Roman history. And these are the classical periods that drive, you know, uh, a lot of even today contemporary thought and uh, practices, uh, belief systems, etc. But I like to look at history from a longer perspective. And when you come from a place like, Uh, India, you can appreciate that we also have a 25,000 year history. And, uh, you know, and and more and more, we're beginning to recognize that uh, there were ancient civilizations that predated kind of modern civilizations. Um, And so when you look at that more from a cyclical point of view, as opposed to a linear point of view, then I think you have the perspective that uh, there is a constant shift from one, uh, you know, uh, one culture to another culture, eventually back to the same culture. For most of even the last 2000 years, India and China uh, constituted the biggest part of the global economy. Uh, it's really quite an exception in the industrial era over the last 100, 200 years that the West have, has dominated. Prior to that, we had another 300 years of colonial era where, again, uh, technologies such as, you know, uh, you know, effective use of the commercial channels and shipping, you're Portuguese originally, so you know that, <laughs> uh, you know, allowed them to, uh, allowed them to uh, export their own IP in a way that was more competitive. But I look at it as a cyclical thing. I don't look at it as a linear thing. In fact, uh, from a philosophical point of view, I think that's one of the big differences um, in the way that Western uh, thought is organized and the way that Eastern thought is organized. Eastern thought is very much organized in a cyclical way, whereas Western thought is uh, linear. You know, in the West, like the greatest ideal is someone like Alexander, right? He was born, and by the age of thirty-two, he conquered the world. So it was a very, um, uh, it was a very uh, actualized life. Whereas in the East, when Alexander tried to enter or cross the Indus, he saw a sadhu sitting there. And you know, and his people, his generals, or his army, uh, told the Sadhu to bow in obeisance of this uh, conquer of the universe, and the Sadhu looked up and he said, "Oh yeah, conquer of the universe. I've seen many of them come and go through the millennium." <laughs> so uh, you know when you take that cyclical point of view, then all of this seems much more natural
0: That's very interesting, and actually that shows as well your wealth of knowledge and culture, and I think as well it shows as well the way. And I want to touch that because I think from all my friends in India, there's a sense of history that is completely different from Europe, but different from uh, from U.S. I mean, in U.S., there's no sense of history in most of the cases because it's a very new country. So from this history, and as well, I want to touch right now, you're, you're uh, starting in the financial world. So you start in the financial world when it was very Wall Street driven, and as well, pre-digital so you went through all the revolutions and, and as well you, 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 you were working in, in markets like we start from the US to Tokyo which is kind of a I imagine it was another shock cultural and you learned Japanese so can you tell us about that experience starting in the financial industry and investment in the years that was kind of probably wild west in terms of financial industry but as well very strong um, experiences as well Sales. yeah I mean uh
1: I did start when I was 21 years old and I finished undergraduate. Uh, And before I started graduate school, I was actually signed up at Fordham University. Interestingly enough, while I went to an Anglican boarding school as a kid in India, uh, in the U.S., I spent my entire education in the Jesuit system. I went to a Jesuit high school, a Jesuit undergrad, a Jesuit grad school. So while I was in between my undergraduate and grad, uh, I, I was I switched from Cleveland to New York City to Manhattan where I went to Fordham uh, and I was actually a law student or I was you know i had signed up for law school and uh, during that summer it's kind of a long story so I won't go into it now but by pure coincidence my uncle actually happened to be a foreign exchange trader living in Connecticut and his neighbor was a city banker and uh, you know through his introduction I met him and Through meeting this city banker, I ended up getting a job that was almost custom built around my availability. Since I was a graduate student, they put me on the night desk for Japan. And uh, so from the get go, I was involved in something that was even more exotic. At that time, Japan was an emerging market. Well, not quite, but it was definitely an exotic international market. Uh, America was, uh, the American capital markets was very focused on itself, and especially with. Last Steagle, There was a lot of delineation between banking, corporate banking, investment banking, uh, you know, securities activity. Uh, all of that is now, uh, you know, consolidated now. So a group like Citibank at that time was very much a bank as opposed to an investment bank. Uh, today, it, you know, it's, it does all things. So uh, I started very much with an international perspective, um, and I and I started with a lot with a lot less organization or hierarchy, or formality than a lot of other people who entered the, uh, you know, the industry would have. First of all, I started in the trading area. Uh, the trading area is fundamentally different from investment banking, asset management, in that you know, it's really uh, uh, a much more, um, yeah, I would say it's much more entrepreneurial, it's much more commercially driven than it is uh, academically driven. You know, the investment bankers all came from Ivy League schools, but traders usually were Jewish kids from Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> so, and that's not that different today. Now it's like, you know, you have a lot of Indian uh, Indians in the trading, uh, in the equity trading or debt trading, uh, the capital markets trading business, because they're naturally gifted traders, you know, especially Gujaratis and uh, other communities from, uh, from uh, uh, India. I found that out later, but in those days, I was one of the few, uh, non, uh, kind of Jewish guys in the business in India, uh, in, uh, in New York, sorry, in Wall Street. And that was, uh, that was also, uh, uh, you know, a different perspective. And I learned a lot from that. Uh, but because I, because it was a lot less formal, I, I was a, not looking at the organized American markets. I was looking at Japan. B, I wasn't working within normal office hours. I was working kind of like overnight on the trading desk and, And, uh, you know, interfacing with people uh, who were, you know, who were awake or during the training hours in Japan. And so I had to learn a lot of those, you know, I had to learn a lot of the business on my own without a lot of, without mentorship, without supervision, without formal, uh, you know, kind of SOP type training. And I guess uh, that equipped me eventually for life as an entrepreneur, because again, you know, when you shift away from the formal hierarchical kind of commercial and corporate world, into the, you know, the modern entrepreneurial world where essentially, you know, everyone's a one-man band, uh, you, you need to be able to be very, um, you need to be able to learn things on your own, but you also need to have very strong lateral thinking. So um, starting with Japan, uh, as soon as I finished my, I switched from a law degree to a, a business degree. I finished my master's and almost as soon as I finished, I uh, was exported to uh, Tokyo first, then London, and then I couldn't handle the UK winters. You live there, but you know, I know, I know that, it, <laughs>
2: that
1: the UK winters get pretty uh, pretty difficult to deal with, right? We, especially as a trader, you'd go to work in the morning at 7 o'clock when it's dark, and you'd come home at 7 o'clock when it's dark, and that went on for six months, so that wasn't a lot of fun. And uh, I guess Hong Kong was a lot more fun when I landed here. And uh, so I stuck that one out for a lot longer.
0: So that, that's a quite amazing career as well. So I would like to to touch uh, your experience, especially in London when you start uh, Korea, how different the markets were for the time and as well in Tokyo. Could you tell us a bit about that? Because I think it's really interesting to see how the financial industry and investment industry change and as well to the point right now that is much more driven by technology at the time. It was more driven by sales and by markets can you just give us because that's interesting to look at these three of the last three decades um of trading and investment
1: yeah well absolutely that was an analog business then and it is a totally digital business now um uh the skill uh, of a trader is far eclipsed uh of, an, of a human trader that is as far eclipsed by uh technology and by you know uh algorithmic uh, sort of systems and other quantitative trading tools. So when we started, it was totally analog. You know, we were uh, doing things by hand. We were uh, doing things by uh, kind of almost instinct and that feel. Uh, and when I say doing things, I mean, you know, trading a lot of money. We were buying and selling uh, and, and, uh, and, and absorbing information in an analog fashion uh, that had its advantages. Obviously it's, it's kind of was why, um, uh, there was such a dis. It was kind of why people, the individuals that were able to uh, function within those chaotic environments, were so uh, you know were were compensated uh, so extravagantly, right? I mean, they made millions of dollars when people were making forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. At twenty-seven, I was making you know uh, seven or eight hundred thousand dollars a year. So that that was a, an advantage if you were able to function in that type of environment, but. Um, use of technology and some you know start as as it started becoming deployed into the financial markets uh changed that and i saw my own career had witnessed that change not not only the change in culture as you kind of hinted at it was very sales driven it was very relationship driven it was a people-oriented business you know uh especially in a place like london uh the city was full of the quote unquote blue bloods and you know, and and in different environments, whether Wall Street or whether uh, Hong Kong or Tokyo, it was a club that basically ran those businesses. Well, it got democratized, uh, decentralized, if you will, by the use of technology and parallels of that, we've seen in many, many different industries, uh, you know, uh, over the next couple of decades, right? We saw that uh, with personal computing, with internet, with mobile telephony. Now we're seeing it with blockchain, Uh, you know, the decentralization of information from institutional into kind of uh, nodes uh, and eventually into individual hands. So I've seen that change in the financial services industry. I mean, the bulk of my experience in banking was, um, 13 years was as a trader, so I can speak to that. I started off, you know, basically just moving bits of paper around, but when I ended, and in fact, the last couple of assignments I had, uh, or, you know, jobs that I had within the industry, I was CEO of a company called ITG uh, in Hong Kong, covering Asia. And ITG stand, uh, uh, you know, was in, uh, st- uh, stood for Investment Technology Group. So we were one of the earliest uh, users of quantitative trading tools, of algorithmic trading tools, of black box uh, matching systems uh, called Posit, for example, the one that we had, where buyers and sellers could uh, could get automatically matched in a in a system as opposed to by people so that transition was very uh, you know was very apparent in my own career and uh, i guess we're seeing it now industry by industry and as we have you know four ir fourth industrial revolution technologies starting to be deployed and perhaps being accelerated now through you know the current crisis that we have uh you know we're going to see that change from analog to digital happen in many, uh,
0: in all industries, really, ultimately. That's a, that's quite a fantastic background as well. And that shows as well the, the intersections that we are right now between business industries and as well uh, finance and money. And even the concept of money have been changing. So so from this experience, you are as well CEO of a, of a division of an investment bank. Can you tell us a bit Kind of some of the takeovers, so the, the, the biggest uh, uh, insights that you got from this career in finance and investment, She's still involved, but as well at the time, more in directly on the, on the banking and investment industry.
1: Yeah, well, as I said, I spent, you know, at least from, uh, from the point of view of my senior appointments, where, you know, I ran uh, equity desks, or I was CEO of uh, securities companies, or country managers, that was all in Asia. You know, so my experience was in Hong Kong, in India, uh, where I was uh, head of Cantor, Cantor Fitzgerald in India, uh, in Southeast Asia, where you know uh, I, I ran trading desks, uh, uh, overseeing uh, growth emerging markets like Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, so, um, the the you know the uh, the development, the experiences that I had. Uh, uh, saw the development, the emergence of new economies like China. I remember in 2000, uh, you know, when I went to pitch for a uh, mandate uh, with uh, for a watchmaking company in Shenzhen, it was really a, an eye-opening experience. Um, at that time, we still thought of China as a backwater. Uh, I remember a lot of my friends from India who were business owners would come in to trade uh, in, in China, and they were almost paranoid that China would be like this, you know, kind of backward place with not a lot of sophistication and not a great deal of infrastructure. Well, we knew that that was changing by 2000 for sure. But really, when I went and saw that company, I still remember the name of the company was called Daily Web. It was an eye opener. We drove into their factory facility and it was on, you know, tens of acres of land. Uh, the size of the facility was absolutely enormous. Uh, it was state of the art you know the production line was highly automated, and the campus included uh not only the factory but also the residential facilities for the employees, a school medical it was that was the china scale economies of scale manufacturing model and and I saw it you know firsthand uh, in the early days in two thousand and at that point, the penny dropped that wow, this thing is these guys are going to be a game changer i mean they 're going to change the way. That you know physical goods are made um, and uh, you know and, and they will be at the cutting edge of the use of uh, technology they would be able to leapfrog and use technologies and efficiencies that a lot of legacy places just wouldn 't be able to back end into they don 't have it and they wouldn't, would, they wouldn 't get it. so I saw those type of changes. China was the big one, the eight hundred pound gorilla that emerged, but you know Southeast Asia and even places like Korea, for example, in East Asia. Uh, you know, have been very interesting. If you look at Korea emerging from the Asian financial crisis in, uh, in 1997, 1998, it was one of the worst hit. Um, I remember Koreans, uh, you know, the, the Korean won had gone into free fall. Uh, Korean citizens were uh, donating gold into uh, banks to be sent back to the central bank and the treasury of the country to uh, allow them to uh, remain solvent. It was really, you know, it was really. Uh, an economy that was in an insolvency, and over the next couple of decades, uh, Korea has re-emerged and, and, you know, refreshed itself as an innovation economy, as a Japan 2.0, if you will, with, you know, some of the most dominating technology companies in the world, some of the, you know, most innovative uh, um, uh, technology in, uh, inventions, and one of the largest workforce of very highly trained, sort of PhD level educated. Um, uh, you know uh, scientists
0: so that that touches to one question that we have right now that probably one bigger consideration is that the 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 differences of velocities and as well our countries that were in a very fragile situation uh, are changing the world's the whole system and you touch as well the the concept of leapfrogging so a, a lot of these countries are leapfrogging because they didn't have all the legacy systems and never even the conservative that comes out of sometimes people that get comfortable in their positions, they don't want to change, they don't want to uh, disrupt or innovate. So from that experience, and I think being a citizen of India and then as well, growing up in the US and then coming back to Hong Kong and now in Malaysia, how would you see this geographic location then, especially how do you see India, and as well Hong Kong and then Malaysia? I think these three points are particularly interesting because uh, India in the sense of becoming the second biggest world economy in the next 20 years um, and, and, of course, U.S. probably right now in the decadence. Let's see what is going to happen. And as well, in the case of Malaysia, which is one of the key uh, tiger economy, probably the Southeast Asia market. So just a bit of overview on these three levels.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, that covers, uh, you know, that covers uh, a lot of ground, obviously. So I'll kind of stick to a few uh, high-level points on each of them. I mean, I think the U.S. is, a, is, is an economy that uh, is no longer... Uh, a dominating sort of hegemony around the world and it has to come to grips with that, but no one should underestimate the uh, you know the vast infrastructure that uh, American government American commerce American military military industrial complex has on the planet today at least for the rest of our life I think we're going to see we're going to, we're going to continue to see the us as a dominant force uh, in the global uh, economy whether or not you know, China leapfrogs it. Whether or not uh, you know uh, other countries uh, develop better, you know, use and specializations of, uh, uh, of of various technologies, the U.S. as a whole remains a dominant place, and even today it still a, is one of the greatest innovation economies on the planet. So Silicon Valley, you know, still houses the you know the big boys of American, uh, I mean, of global tech, uh, and they're all American companies. You know, the Chinese are obviously trying to replicate that. With their own uh, version of that, companies like Tencent, et cetera. But um, I think the Americans have the best infrastructure on the planet from a digital perspective today, and uh, that will uh, allow them to uh, continue to dominate for some time yet. Uh, India is an interesting uh, story because, uh, you know, India trying to become another China uh, is, is not really feasible. And shouldn't even be an, an aspiration uh, to try and create the same type of, uh, you know, kind of logistical infrastructure, physical infrastructure that China has been able to develop is something probably beyond the grasp of India uh, and beyond the grasp of a democratic, uh, uh, you know, country The institutionally it's a fundamentally different approach to, you know, to developing or to rolling out on a broad scale that type of an infrastructure than uh, you know than what was possible in China, however, in India, what you are seeing that is very interesting is a migration because of the lack of infrastructure, because of the physical bottlenecks, because of the you know great demand uh, excess over supply you 're seeing a migration uh, of uh, you know products and services from the physical infrastructure into the digital infrastructure and india uh, you know, even earlier, uh, was a player in the tech world providing, you know, uh, providing uh, um, call center services, providing software services for global companies. But now that level of of sophistication has increased significantly. um, And uh, the large kind of population that they have and the lack of infrastructure, the lack of uh, physical uh, resources that they have will accelerate. India into a digital and etheric type of environment a lot faster than other uh, economies, and because of the size of India, the impact of that will be felt much more greatly. So, um, I think that an interesting contrast uh, between um, you know uh, emerging economies uh, and technology, or the, is that emerging economies don't have to follow. Uh, a step-by-step process to catch up to technologically advanced developed societies. They can leapfrog uh, technologically advanced societies by onboarding uh, newer technologies faster with less resistance from legacy players than a lot of developed economies. We've seen this happen in many industries just going back over the last decade. right? The cellular industry was a great example. Uh, you know, uh, cellular companies that uh, cropped up were independent, like uh, and not part of the uh, the, the the big uh, the big telcos, because the big telcos didn't want to cannibalize their own marketplace, I mean, their own their own market share, uh, and so they were slow to onboard those type of uh, uh, technologies. And eventually, they had to buy these uh, cellular companies to remain, you know, dominant in their marketplaces. So. Uh, in, in 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 Hollywood, you know, we're seeing the same thing happen with digital companies like um, Netflix and Amazon, Google. I remember when I was in LA in uh, in, in, in 2012 to 17, uh, the emergence of those uh, those those companies was accelerating, and uh, there were uh, it, it was uh, it was obvious that uh, these big tech companies didn't see themselves just as tech companies they saw themselves as integrated media tech conglomerates. Um, and so, again, the conventional you know, media players, the big studios were slow to react to that And companies like Netflix and Amazon had eaten their lunch on that. And I think uh, as 4IR technologies start getting rolled out, you will see the same resistance. I think fintech is a great example. The banks, almost exactly the, the same uh, situation where, challenger banks are called that exactly for that reason, neobanks, challenger banks, because they're challenging the conventional banking system. And in doing so, uh, you know, the conventional banks are largely trying to ring fence and protect themselves, but, you know, eventually they're going to have to uh, uh, maybe acquire or get acquired by uh, fintech players that, have, that are far more efficient, have far greater reach, are far more ubiquitous in terms of the way that they can access and you know, interact with their customer. And, uh, you know, one by one across industries, I think that change is going to happen.
0: Yeah, so, so you touch a lot of uh, uh, powerful topics that are really key to reinvent nations and countries. And actually, like you said, the, there's, there's a lot of different velocities, but as well, there's space for a lot of things. So from your experience in the financial industry to the fintech industry, but as well... You see fintech nowadays, and you touch with that, but as well, the relationships between investment and blockchain and tokenization, some of the areas that have been working specifically in exchanges, and you're still working and focused.
1: Yeah, so uh, in fact, that's uh, that's, uh, a good segue to also addressing the other two uh, uh, countries that you mentioned, uh, you know, Hong Kong and China and Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Uh, So we talked about the U.S. and India a little bit, but your question um, is appropriate for, I think, how I see uh, those economies uh, do exactly that to, to, you know, have the opportunity to compete and leapfrog in in areas. So take a country like Malaysia, for example. That's an interesting, uh, 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 you know, uh, situation where it's it's obvious that as Malaysia tries to, you know, uh, uh, has an aspiration to become an innovation economy as it aspires to migrate from a low cost low wages economy to you know a, a high wages knowledge based innovation economy something that korea has done again in the last couple of decades it's almost a model that uh, a country like malaysia wants to follow but as it does that it's pretty obvious to me that you know malaysia isn't going to be able to compete across the spectrum of that uh, of 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 that uh, uh, you know of that uh, technological change right so if you look at things like ai for example uh if you look at um, uh you know robotics uh there's just so much investment and so much development and ip uh that that has already kind of uh taken the lead in places like uh, the us and in japan in china uh, that it would be difficult for a place like malaysia with its limited resources its limited size to compete across the board. So countries like that have to pick and choose the areas within the 4IR spectrum that it wants to compete into. Um, we set up an initiative uh, last year, and you know that because you were part of it, and you helped architect that for us, uh, called KL Tech City. Uh, the country uh, wanted a digital transformation program, but they didn't know what to digitally transform, transform into. Uh, the book that you wrote and actually co-authored with a Malaysian gentleman, my business partner here, Rais Hussain, uh, was, uh, is titled Reinventing a Nation uh, for IR Technologies Reinventing a Nation. So it addressed the blueprint that these countries have to first uh, design for them to find the pockets within that technological spectrum for them to compete in. So if you look at Malaysia, for example, even within a, a sector like fintech, Uh, I think it has to find the niche within fintech that it might uh, 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 have local companies that are competitive into. It might create clusters that are competitive and it might have the resources to support, you know, an ecosystem or a vertical that is competitive. So uh, like Islamic fintech, for example, I think Malaysia has a good shot within that subcategory of fintech to develop an ecosystem that is globally competitive, you know, and where they find some white space to, Uh, you know, to move around without uh, running into some of the bigger, uh, you know, uh, the bigger, more heavily funded uh, 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 players from, let's say, Silicon Valley or from Europe or from Japan. Um, Within digital asset exchanges, uh, given that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the leading money market uh, uh, centers like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore are very vested in their legacy systems. They're very tied into the uh, you know, into the 1.0 financial services marketplace. So they will be a lot less incentivized and a lot less flexible to move into disruptive fintech and disruptive digital asset exchange, uh, uh, you know, uh, marketplaces than countries like Malaysia can uh, uh, because they, they have a lot less loose, you know. And uh, so it, if the, if you have the luxury like Malaysia has, of having common law, of having English language, of having a Commonwealth background that makes you conversant with, you know, kind of global marketplaces, then you can pick and choose areas like digital asset exchanges, like uh, Islamic fintech, which are niches within the spectrum that will allow you to leapfrog and emerge as far more competitive as leaders, if you will, uh, you know, around the world. Um, Hong Kong is a different example. Hong Kong is kind of a gateway in and out of a very powerful, uh, you know, uh, uh, leader in uh, not only the uh, not only the uh, global economy. Uh, we're talking about China, of course, but also in the emergent technologies. China has the luxury of uh, being able to think in very long uh, timeframes. They don't have an election system like democracies have. And because of that, they get to think in generational terms, not in two year, four year, five year election kind of uh, bite cycles. Uh, And because of that, they can develop uh, strategies that are uh, far more innovative and far more far reaching than than many other countries uh, uh, that are democratic systems. Or many other countries that are just not as large and therefore don't have the same resources that a country like China enjoys. So Hong Kong becomes a very critical uh, gateway into that marketplace and out of that marketplace. Maybe it's not something that will last forever. I think the Chinese themselves have understood that they need alternatives to Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, to interact with the rest of the world. But as the, uh, you know, as as it as it as it, um, uh, as it uh, uh, exists uh, exists today, and probably for you know for for the for the near future anyway. Hong Kong has the intellectual capital, it has the uh, regulatory infrastructure, and it has the access uh, to the global marketplace that allows you to uh, allows China to interface with the world, and allows the world to interface with China.
0: So two parts on that. So you mentioned Caltech City and the work you've been doing with Raiz Asin and as well the work in Malaysia. And as well, you are the CEO and founder of Deutsche Malayan Ventures. Do you want to highlight especially Deutsche Malayan Ventures and a bit talk more about Caltech City?
1: Sure. Uh, uh, for that, I'll give you just a little very quick uh, kind of uh, background. So one part of my life that we talked about was my, you know, kind of banking life, uh, And uh, that lasted for, you know, kind of uh, 18 years or so. And then the second part of my life for the last dozen years has been, you know, uh, as a individual businessman, as an entrepreneur, kind of a serial entrepreneur, if you will. Um, And within that time, um, I've had the uh, opportunity to live in Malaysia. I went back to L.A. for a while and, 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 uh, you know, and and, uh, uh, invested into the intersection of media and technology through uh, a private equity uh, media fund structure that I had created. Um, And uh, and, 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 uh, I also uh, had the opportunity to uh, uh, work with Chinese capital that was exiting China uh, and being invested into the global marketplace and sectors that I had some domain expertise into, uh, namely technology and media. So uh, with that background of things, I was kind of hopping around doing a lot of uh, different businesses. I was in renewable energy. I was in the media technology space, uh, you know, uh, and also coming from a banking background, we were you know, able to move across. We were conversant, I would say, jack of all trades, conversant in many different industries. So the opportunity that emerged in Malaysia in 2018 was that uh, a government changed in Malaysia for the first time in over 60 years. Uh, one of my earlier entrepreneurial ventures in the renewable energy space was in Malaysia. and My business partner at that time was a local businessman who was also quite politically active. So as the change in government happened from the, you know, the single-party state that was in effect since independence to essentially a new opposition coalition, uh, my former business partner happened to be you know, a significant voice within the new government. You met him and you know, you know that uh, he came in with an agenda and a manifesto for essentially changing a lot of the legacy systems that, you know, the political systems that Malaysia had kind of cemented itself into over several decades. That included, by the way, the digital transformation agenda uh, and the mindset change of Malaysia moving from, you know, essentially
2: a manufacturing... One, two, more in, uh, But they didn't really and so of government link companies signing that blueprint of what the technical transformation, the digital transformation is. Uh, uh, I also Said that,
1: that you know the exercise that he along with uh, uh, my local partner here, uh, Raiz, who was uh, active in the government, as well as um, as well as my business partners from Europe, who have a lot of technological. Uh, uh, Expertise and uh, experience investing in technology uh, especially in, in Europe but around the world uh, so Connie Bursch, for example, who's my partner is you know pretty well known across Europe as a super angel and, and one of the largest investors in digital technology and um, even though he's European we call it Deutsch Malayan for that region reason but you know he has uh, 15 offices around the world and they invest in everything from Latin America to Japanese startups so that seemed to be a good team, you know, to bring to the table here and to explore what type of IP transit we could uh, shepherd into the country to help develop those sectors. So, I don't, Deutsch Ventures isn't a formal organization like a Goldman Sachs or like a McKinsey that had a clear, you know, organizational business plan. No, it was more a, uh, it was more a association that was uh, designed to uh, create the skill set to assist uh, in in the transformation. That uh, defining it, uh, resourcing it, and executing it that we had uh, we had we had uh, understood was uh, the the government in Malaysia and the private sector in Malaysia wanted to achieve. So I call it more of a venture building model where we ourselves promote initiatives that then trigger ecosystems around with around which we can invite different you know stakeholders to participate in uh, so one of our main projects that actually spoke to that was uh, called KL tech city uh, I think you yourself came to Malaysia a couple of years ago met with some of the senior uh, you know uh, government leaders here uh, and helped design and architect the overall master plan for what a tech city would look like and you know what the components of that tech city would be um and as we have moved that model along through various iterations now we have uh, begun we, we've understood that just creating a template is not enough we have to also populate that template with various initiatives that allow us to you know essentially trigger an ecosystem around it so if we want fintech we have to bring in fintech initiatives or create fintech initiatives that essentially create commercial activity around it if we want digital asset exchanges we have to promote and start uh, you know uh, uh, developing those tools uh, around which that economic activity can you know can 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 be created and if we want um, uh, and if you find that there are uh, uh, that there's a lack in terms of the resources in terms of the uh, uh, the, uh, the the skill set um, in terms of the the capital then we create platforms that uh, allow us to draw in capital, that allow us to train resources, that allow us to um, uh, organize IP so that it can be fed into those initiatives. That's the vision behind KL Tech City and that's the pragmatic way that we're, we're rolling it out. Now, uh, given that we are not organized as you know a large uh, uh, institution, like a Goldman Sachs or like a McKinsey or like a consulting company or like an investment bank, uh, that means that we have to work with other stakeholders to bring them in and kind of coordinate their activity within this. And that's what we see our role to be.
0: So, so from from the Dutch Malone Ventures, what would be like the major projects that you've been working besides Caltech City uh, that you could highlight to our audience? Because I know that you've been doing a lot of things in infrastructure. I think it's quite interesting for countries they're trying to um, emulate that and as well even to work with organizations like yours and I, I think with the COVID-19 is highlighting a lot of opportunities of collaboration with organizations like yours that actually can accelerate relationships and, and leapfrog as well a lot of things that sometimes take a huge amount of time because of political and they can be much more driven in projects infrastructure and consolidation of things can you tell us about that?
1: Sure so um, kl tech city you know is 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 uh, is a project specifically to a, you know specifically designed around the digital transformation but uh, deutsch million ventures was set up as a tool for the government uh, uh, for the government to use to help uh, bring in capital uh, strategic, strategic partners and ip uh, for their uh, you know for their uh, initiatives for their uh, prioritized projects. So those could range anywhere from, you know, building a power plant to building a smart city to uh, divestment of, uh, you know, a government asset uh, to, you know, a acquisition of, uh, you know, key resources or key assets. Um, And we've had the luxury of being able to, you know, kind of speak to a broad uh, number of, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, of the, of the leadership across different ministries, across different states, uh, across different, you know, private and government linked companies over here. But we've been very selective in terms of what we've picked and choose chosen from that uh, list of wish lists. Cause you know, if you go and talk to one politician or one government leader or one chief minister, he might have 10 projects. But when you go and talk to 10 of them, that's a hundred projects. <laughs> so very quickly, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, if you're looking at uh, too many things to, to, uh, to really focus on and, and, and be able to execute. So what we've done is actually something far more uh, selective. We've only looked at projects where we can bring in capital, bring in expertise, bring in technologies that isn't available here. There's no value add for me to go and be the 101st guy trying to compete with the Local players who already know what they're doing, but there's a great deal of value add for me bringing, uh, you know, uh, filling in the white spaces or the blank spaces that uh, that they that aren't catered to over here with uh, with um, you know with capital from outside with technology from outside. If you look at the tag tagline of Deutsche Malay Ventures when we set it up, we called it precision inbound investment. So uh, that wanted that uh, we wanted to signal and communicate to the stakeholders here that we were bringing something to the table. We weren't coming here trying to compete for resources capital from Malaysia to go export uh, outside. We were coming here to offer them additional tools to help uh, achieve their objectives here in the country.
0: That's uh, that's very impressive. And I think this is kind of the models that I think... uh, uh, I see more and more countries have to take and as well working in organizations like yours that have both the expertise, both technical and financial and create relationships. So I want to go from that and we are passing the one hour benchmark of the interview. So one of the things within touch is that you have a huge as well component in terms of balancing different areas of, um, actually, as you put it, I want to use your quote, I think is an interesting one. I think the the idea we didn't touch that we touched just a small part in terms of the levels of uh, media and tech which is going to be increasingly important but i would like to touch your experience because you have the financial background the technology background but as well the media background having been working and producing some major Hollywood films or at least being in the set but as well Bollywood and as well right now in the music industry which is kind of an interesting wrap-up because you have not only the financial and the investment and the technological but as well the media and the creative um, and as well, you're a writer and as well as a screenwriter. So could you highlight that? I think it's quite interesting as well to put on the top of this because as well, media industries are critical to consolidate narratives and to consolidate as well, even social, wealth, uh, social empowerment and social balance. Sure.
1: Well, I mean, that, that's, uh, I think that's another one hour, uh, interview that we can do. Yes, we probably for sure. do that. <laughs> but, we'll take uh, it to the next uh, one. I, it, I always thought I'd be a writer, actually. Like I said, I told you about my, uh, you know, experience growing up in a British school. And, uh, you know, when I moved to America, they were all very charmed by my command of the English language, which, you know, every, everyone thought, uh, immigrants speak poor English. I spoke better English than most uh, Americans did. But, uh, you know, uh it was a hobby of mine. After I joined the banking industry, I continued to write. Uh, Someone along the way thought that my style was more visual than, uh, you know, kind of uh, descriptive. And so um, I uh, began writing screenplays, always really a passion of mine, to be honest. And uh, so I tried my hand at writing a couple of screenplays and even uh, uh, produced a few films myself independently, um, uh, which later on, became quite valuable experience for me when I raised capital for a media fund and became part of the team deploying that and worked in the cross-border channel between Asia and Hollywood doing that. That actually started uh, in uh, 2008 uh, when I think one of the big Indian groups, uh, Indian conglomerates, invested into Steven Spielberg's company. Reliance from India put $500 million into, uh, into DreamWorks. And we thought that that would trigger a lot of capital from India uh, coming into Hollywood. We already saw that the Chinese were investing and certainly the Chinese did invest, uh, became the dominant investor in in Hollywood. And we thought the same thing would happen uh, from India. It happened uh, to a lesser extent from India, but the logic was um, that we would create a cross-border platform that would allow us to migrate IP from Hollywood into not just South Asia, not just India, but into the Asian markets, which had a lot of desire for those IPs. Uh, and I'm not just films, for example, for distribution in Indian markets or Asian markets, but also things like you know, theme parks, brands, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, other type of uh, intellectual property and, 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 and uh, that was desirable as these markets developed. Uh, One of the deals we did, for example, was we brought Virgin Group to India and created a company called Virgin Produced India. Uh, So that was a partnership with Richard Branson, focusing on the youth demographic in India, uh, because that is the, you know, sort of big bottom of pyramid base uh, in India that uh, is beginning to consume, right? And especially consume on digital channels uh, with the onset and the penetration of, Broadband and and, uh, uh, and and smartphone telephony across India—the consumption appetite of that demographic just grew parabolically, exponentially, and so uh, we were able to bridge those things. Uh, we also brought capital from Asia into Hollywood. Hollywood is an unending has an unending uh, desire for capital, so that's uh, you know that's that's never going to end. It was the Chinese, and tomorrow will be somebody else, and before that it was you know, the Russians, so, you know, there's always going to be different guys knocking on the door looking to invest money. But I was more interested in investing not in the conventional sort of film space, but more in the intersection of media and technology. So, you know, we did deals where we invested in companies like IMAX, rather than investing in Disney, for example, Uh, you know, where we launched our own digital streaming channel. Um, The whole over-the-top play that, uh, you know, that the uh, digital channels offered seemed to me and you know ultimately has been a game changer so that's really where our area of focus has been ip migra- migration from hollywood into asia and uh, capital from asia into hollywood but really the uh, the 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 interplay of of, of media and technology uh, what was virgin produce india the partnership we had with richard branson uh sort of morphed over time to become what today is a music business, we call it Desi Hip Hop. Desi is sort of India. Indian, and, uh, you know, and the hip hop, is one of the large immersion genres that cater to the uh, youth di- uh, diaspora in India. Uh, we learned a lot about that in the exercise we did with Virgin. And so we understood that they consume, you know, pop culture through music, through sports. And so we created platforms uh, around that. Um, and so outside of the more conventional uh, venture capital work that we do uh, and the focus that we have in technology and Deutsche Malayan Ventures and in KL Tech City, you know, these these businesses remain part of my portfolio, like the music business, uh, as well as the, you know, the premium content production business. uh, So making content for the digital channels. And it's a fun part of the business uh, where you get to be more creative uh, and you get to, you know, kind of... uh, 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 you know, you get to participate in in in, uh, in the sunrise industries where you have this exaggerated growth rates. Uh, but as I'm beginning, thanks to people like you and uh, and thanks to the work we're doing in things like KL Tech City, as I'm beginning to to um, uh, to uh, you know to uh, get more and more involved in the whole technology world and for IR technology in particular. I'm beginning to recognize that you know that's just as creative, that's just as fun, and you know that's just as exciting as anything you could possibly do in music or films or media. So I guess that's a good play, good, 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 good uh, <laughs> spot to kind of uh, stall and uh, to, to stop it at on this discussion. I mean, I kind of enjoyed talking about a lot of different things, ranging from my background to the geographic mix to the way that countries will leapfrog. So we've kind of been a little bit all over the place, but that's That's the age we live in right now. There's so much information out there. And I guess our job is to kind of funnel that into ways that can be brought into action into different, you know, segments, sectors, different, you know, kind of verticals. And I've had the, you know, we we have the luxury, I guess, we're the exception. Uh, We have the flexibility. We have the luxury of being able to do it across so many different uh, uh, industries that have different perspectives. So... We hopefully will continue to do that and we'll find some uh you know projects that will then uh scale and we'll be able to bring in bigger partners bring in bigger stakeholders and uh ultimately you know bring in a, a larger audience for it
0: now that, that, that's excellent and you're right i think it's uh, we live in especially people in the investment world you have to have a lot of ads you have to and as well if you work you have to have the media, the technology, but as well the thought leadership, but as well the research. And increasingly, the the, the barriers and the frontiers between the different areas are, are disappearing. So one last question, and I think it's more of the personal, but I think it's, it's interesting. Um, and being uh, someone that was uh, on all this culture, and coming back to the beginning question, and I think this is particularly important, COVID-19. So from your experience, working in all these different cultures, growing up with two massive different cultures, uh, we have the Indian that is a super ancestral millennial culture and then the American that is very recent and then now of course Hong Kong is as well millennial and then as well Malaysia. So I would like to touch the, the this part of the cultural uh, learning uh, you'd like to pass to the audience and I think especially in this COVID-19 world what would be the message that you pass from all these experiences as well um, in your work across different nationalities, different different business and different industries, but as well uh, being practical as well in, in in keeping the value creation and as well the narrative.
1: Well, I think uh, I think the 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 most uh, the most important takeaway from COVID is that uh, we uh, we have all it will like accelerate the decentralization and the um, uh, and the uh, hierarchy, and the hierarchy, the hierarchy of uh, societies. Uh, what I mean is that uh, we are already on a trend whereby uh, technology and whereby uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, whereby um, uh, the global economy, the interrelatedness of the global economy, has uh, homogenized uh, everyone's access. Uh, to, you know, resources. So someone sitting, you know, all we've already experienced in our own, you know, in the pre-COVID world, the ability for someone to sit in one place, run a business in a different place, and have a customer in a completely different place and do that in an over-the-top way, over-the-top of the conventional channel way. COVID will accelerate that so that, you know, the uh, the the connectivity of the nodes uh, can. Uh, increase exponentially, uh, and not just through centralized sources, right? Uh, so we don't have to look at centralized authorities to dictate uh, how we organize ourselves. We don't have to look at, uh, you know, kind of uh, a geographical um, uh, restrictions in uh, the way that we are organizing our uh, approach, and we don't have to look at uh, cultural uh, differences as a way of exclusion. They can be, you know, a way of inclusion. Um, In a way, it's ironic, but, you know, when we were living in the uh, COVID, uh, the pre-COVID world was a far more physically dependent world, and the post-COVID world is a far less physically dependent world. Whether that means that you, you know, work less in your office, or you, you know, interact less with your community, or whether you, you know, uh, rely less upon you know uh the, convent, the 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 traditional let's say retail uh, channels you you know you're not going to the store necessarily to buy your groceries anymore they come to you through different ways you're not uh, restricted in communicating in physical face to face meetings i mean guys like you and me had to get on planes for uh, you know 3 weeks of the month so that we could go and interact with people around the world but now we're doing that just as efficiently and probably far more uh, you know far uh, uh, in a far greater volume than we have because we've moved off those physical bottlenecks, so you know i think uh, I think it's a reset for us to look at different ways of doing those and they're far more empowering to the individual um, and that fits in nicely with i guess what four i r is all about right it's about basically uh, democratizing information uh, and yes, with oversight obviously from governments from Uh, from, uh, you know, from uh, responsible uh, authorities, but far more with uh, individuals being able to control the value of their own information.
0: That's fantastic. And I think, well, like you said, there's a lot of questions I want to ask, but I think we'll leave it for the next interview. I would, I would like to touch yeah. your your experience between Oliud and Bollywood and as well a lot of these things, but I think we'll leave it. We've passed the one hour. So thank you so much, Azad. It's been a privilege. I don't know if you want to just highlight where people can find the information about the Dutch Malayan Adventures and as well Celtic City. I know that Celtic City has been more like uh, in the inception, but you're going to be doing a lot of the things and some of the things, I don't know, just for our audience, what do you want to highlight?
1: Sure well uh uh, Deutsche Million, uh is uh, uh is uh we have a we have a, a corporate website uh, deutschem uh i have uh, uh increasingly at your at your uh advice and uh, and, and because of your uh <laughs> uh influence i've begun pushing more and more commentary out on conventional social media channels like linkedin uh, you know and uh, uh we we publish a lot of these ideas uh, that we have that help support some of these venture building exercises uh, in uh, not, not only the local press, but also the digital media regionally. I think we'll do more of that. Uh, KL Tech City has uh, up to now been something of a stealth project, but uh, I just have begun the process of, uh, you know, constructing the uh, visual uh, platforms for it, like uh, our, our, our websites, uh, our, our, our partnerships, our press releases. Uh, kltc.com.my is our, uh, is our landing page for that. But, um, you know, we will be rolling out, uh, uh, you know, projects and initiatives, uh, from that and, and supporting it, uh, through, uh, some of the, uh, channels that we work with, obviously like LinkedIn, but also channels like yours, you know, like cities, ABC. Uh, I think I'll, I have published uh, some articles on your platform and I'm planning on doing more of that. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll see Thank you so much.
0: No, no, it's fantastic, and I think you your writing skills are fantastic. So I've been pushing on that, and I think it's important that the world knows about it, not just some. Okay, fantastic. Well, Azad, it's been an honor. We've been here for over an hour, and uh, this will be distributed in a lot of different channels and podcasts and video. And uh, I'm sure we'll follow up for a next one about more of the things that you touch here. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Dennis. Pleasure.